The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, politics, cynicism, and all the usual annoying things. Monday, the 17th of May 2021, guess who's back? Yes, the Autumn series continues today with a friend of the pod, author and reprobate, John Birmingham. We talk about, well, look, you know what he's like. Yeah, I'll tell you what, mate. If one in ten blokes were getting dick rot, we'd be spending more on this than we're going to spend on war with China. JB also expresses opinions about Prime Minister Scott Morrison. He's just a wooden-headed Gumby who misspoke and refuses to admit that he misspoke. And we even talk about food. Every single menu item in that in that cafe restaurant is brown. There's, there's nothing that's not brown there. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. This is the 9pm One Podcast, Two Systems and a Lady Disease with John Birmingham. Oh yeah, and the audio quality is uh, kind of second rate for the first segment because the wrong microphone was being recorded. Anyway, it gets fixed up after a, a, about 10 or 15 minutes. Happy Monday and welcome, JB. Mate, happy to be here. Um, it's six months since we last spoke on the pod, uh, and of course, nothing, nothing of major import has happened in that time, as you know. No, no. Well, we've, you know, how how could it possibly happen? We've all just been, you know, sitting in our rooms, staring at the wall. <laughs> Which does raise the subject of China. Uh, because uh, China, China is pissed off China. with us uh, for a variety <laughs> of reasons, including our insistence that somehow everything is their fault. Uh, I will begin by playing this uh, magnificent clip from our illustrious, illustrious Prime Minister, uh, Mr Scott Morrison. You made a recent comment about Taiwan. You referred to it as one country, two systems. Why did you say that? Well, what we know is that we have a situation with China where we've recognised, uh, we've recognised uh, how they uh, see these relationships within the region, and particularly in relation to Taiwan and primarily Hong Kong and, and things of that nature. And so Australia understands that. That's always been the basis of our policies. But did you make a mistake in that comment? No. All right, Prime Minister. Look, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Prime Minister, and uh, the government oh of God. Taiwan are now thanking you very much. <laughs> <laughs> for your yeah. support, uh, it's I was uh, yeah. I'm, I'm surprised that hasn't been a biggest. I mean, I suppose it's not a biggest story because everyone knows he's he's just a wooden-headed Gumby who misspoke and refuses to admit that he misspoke. It's it, yeah. it, it's funny. I I I'd only ever read that particular comment um, about Taiwan, and I hadn't uh, I hadn't heard the audio of it before. He just reminds me of, you know, the dumb kids, not the dumbest kid in the class, but, you know, not not the sharpest tool in the shed either, but he's down the back of the, and he's been called on by the teacher to answer a question. He's got nothing. He's got absolutely nothing. And he's just dissembling and and throwing words out there. And, and then, you know, he runs out of words to throw out there. So he just grabs the same words and he throws them out again. And he just, I, I'm... It was like the entire world, including the Chinese, like even Global Times didn't didn't make anything of it, which is telling you something. <laughs> the entire world has just sort of looked over, realised the Australian Prime Minister's fly is down and everything is hanging out there and they've all just looked in the other direction. They go, let's just, just pretend that didn't happen. It's not what anyone means. And, uh, Do we need to explain what's, what's going on for the, for the listeners? I think we should. I think we should. And I think you'd be very good at explaining what's going on. The, the, the way that we, we deal with the reality of, of China and Taiwan is that we don't deal with it. No one deals with it. Um, so you've got uh, end of the war, like, you know, the uprising, whatever, the, the, the great victory of the proletariat or something. Uh, back in was it 1948, 49, I think the Kuomintang, the, the, the Chinese nationalists, uh, took off. You know, they they basically and, uh, been, and uh, Chiang Kai Shek, Chiang Kai Shek, yeah, they they they'd had their, you know, their asses beat like a gong, and um, they retreated to the uh, to the island of uh, Taipei, I think it was called Formosa. Yeah, 
you you basically got two Chinas. Um, you've got sort of you know nationalist China, who for a long time we were a bunch of fascists, and then you've got communist China, who are still you know mostly communist. And um, communism with Chinese characteristics, I believe. Yeah, yeah, and it, is, it was never really a, a problem while you know say Mao was in power because he was mostly concerned with you know starving the peasantry into ideological correctitude. But eventually, once um, uh, Deng sort of, you know, takes the, the dampeners off the economy and everything like, explodes and it, it starts to become like a major power, then a superpower, and it's rolling towards hyperpower stasis, you, you, you've got this, this difficult situation where you've got this country, about the same size as Australia, so like 25, 26 million people in Taiwan, Effectively nowadays, it's not quite so fascist. It's kind of a, you know, rambunctious democracy, um, which by which you mean it's one of those parliaments that that occasionally disintegrates into fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah, it could teach <laughs> the New South Wales lower house a thing or two. Um, and you know, the, the way that the, the entire world has dealt with the fact that you've you, you've got what the mainland thinks is a renegade province. What is in effect an independent country? Um, which I hope Global Times is listening to this pod, and uh, is that we just uh, we just ignore it? Um, you know, the, the, what the, what the Chinese want to apply uh, to Taiwan the system that they applied to Hong Kong, which they describe as one country, two systems. So, you know, Hong Kong will come into the fold as it, it did back in the nineteen nineties, but you know, we're not going to crush it under our giant communist boot you know it'll it'll have all of the um all of the things that used to make hong kong so cool you know rule of law free speech and of course that that that's not the case anymore but when morrison stood up but but many people in hong kong haven't quite woken up to the fact or well they're certainly not accepting the fact and the, the thinking was that as um as China liberalised its economy, uh, it would liberalise its, its politics. And be, yeah, I can understand why people would think that because, you know, if you know, money is a form of power, um, you know, having a whole bunch of army divisions and having a one-party state, that's a form of power as well. But having money in your hand, that's the kind of power. And as soon as you allow that, you know, any kind of power to leach out of the control of the the unitary state, you have an alternative power centre. And the thinking, I guess, was not even I guess, just the thinking was that as the Chinese economy grew and you know market power emerged over there, uh, you would have alternatives to the you know the central committee of the, the Communist Party. And you know that was the way it seemed to be going for a while, but the Central Committee had a look at that recently and just said, no, I don't think so, mate. <laughs> so they've they've wound <laughs> it back in. Yeah, and it's that big change, and as you said, money is power. Hugh White, uh, one of Australia's great uh, strategic and defence analysts, most active uh, through the 1990s directly for the government, uh, but <clears throat> since then, well, to anyone who will listen, and a lot of us... Listen to him. Uh, he here's just a tiny grab of what he had to say on the seven AM podcast the other day. As the rivalry between America and China has escalated since, particularly twenty seventeen, as America has been pushing back harder and China has pushed back harder in response, the usual sort of action and reaction thing in any escalating dispute. Australia has gone along with that, and I think that the Morrison government about this time last year, for some reason which I don't really understand, wound it up a couple of notches. Middle powers don't win on every issue against great powers. That's just the way the world works. So we have to choose our fights and we have to choose the way we conduct them. And I think we have to be very realistic about the limits to our power and influence on this. Now, that's, that's not a comforting thing to say. People like the idea that Australia can dictate the terms of our relationship with other countries, even very powerful ones like China. So I think we ha we're going to have to be much more realistic about what kind of influence we can exercise in the region, what kind of influence we can exercise a country like China. 
we might want, for example, to pursue questions of human rights in China. If we do that, that will cost us very dearly in the relationship. And there's a debate to be had about how hard we should push what sacrifices we're prepared to make in order to do that. The image I have about Australia when I listen to that is the United States there is the big, powerful, tough guy saying, we will not accept China doing these things. And Australia being the little guy standing, yeah, you tell them, we're not going to mm. allow you to do that. And it's like... Yeah, yeah. The US is the, like, you know, the US is the rock. And... Yeah. Uh, and we're like this this angry jockey that <laughs> the rock has picked up in his travels, <laughs> shaking our tiny fists. The rock's probably looking down. Who are you, mate? That podcast is worth listening to, I'll say, because they, they have a little montage of Scott Morrison and Peter Dutton doing mm. the chest beating and trying to sound quite a deal tougher than they are. And, yeah, that is – I thought – uh, the, the really telling point that, that White makes, and it is an uncomfortable point, no one wants to hear it, is that, um, you know, uh, our options are pretty limited. Um, like, you you know, there's 25 million us. There's a whole bunch of cities with more than 25 million people in them in, uh, in China. And there's like, I think it's like 1.4 billion. 1.4 billion people now, yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, depending on how you measure the economy, it's either you know, almost as big as the US or even bigger than the US now, it could be twice as big by the 2030s. And that's, that's not to sort of turn them into a, um, a, a monolith. They, you know, China has serious, serious problems going forward. They could see the whole thing turn to custard for them within about 15 or, or 20 years. Um, they've got massive um unquantifiable levels of bad debt within their economies. Um, I, I, I know people who work in the, the the finance sector and that that shit just keeps them up at night. You know, they, they just lie there in bed waiting for the whole thing to implode because that as as massive and, and, and terrifyingly massive as, as the Chinese economy is, it's all it's all built on garbage debt. And we know how that works out in the West because we've been, you know, doing that on and off for hundreds of years. Um, they haven't, you know, they liberalised their economy quite recently, and uh, they've never yet had the experience of dealing with, um, you know, the cataclysmic endpoint of irrational exuberance. Um, whereas that is actually baked into Western economic history and, and probably Western economic. Psychology as well, and it, there's um, yeah, there's, they've got the, the demographic problem looming, where uh, the you know the, the decades of the the one-child policy has created this um, quite terrible imbalance just in you know the the genders in China, and they're an aging population anyway, and the two things sort of feed off each other, uh, and that is going to um, there's a, a saying. Popular amongst um, you know right wing thinkers, but it's you know there's, there's an element of truth to it, which is that China will get old before China gets too powerful. Um, and there's you know mm. uh, yeah, the, the the sort of less political way of saying it is that demographics are destiny, and you know there is a demographic destiny rushing towards China at the moment that yeah it, it doesn't look good for them. Um, so I mean, having said all that, it's still really big. <laughs> <laughs> really small. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you sort of look at these guys and you think, what the hell are they doing? And it's a, it, it seems absolutely inexplicable. But, of course, it, it's it's not explicable. Very few Australian politicians ever, you know, their imaginations very rarely extend along, you know, the the, the last set of breakers at the beach. They, they, they don't think in global terms. They don't think big. And um, they... This government in particular are a bunch of small thinkers and I. they've got some things that they need to, to cover up. Um, they've got real problems of their, their own making, like literally of their own making um, over the past 12 to 18 months. And I think that because a lot of the options that they might have defaulted to before politically, like, you know, 
beaten up on brown people, um, which you know plays well with a, a particular electoral demographic that they need to a, a appeal to. But they don't have that option anymore because the borders are closed to absolutely everyone. I honestly think that this this insanity, and that's what it is, is, is completely explicable in terms of you know they needed somebody to create as a, a sort of bogeyman to distract people from the mess that they have made of uh, the COVID response. Um, and they decided China was going to be it. And it's, there are like undergirding that, um, there are long-term emerging like strategic realities that any Australian government would have to deal with because pretty much every government in this region is going to have to deal with it. And realistically, every government in the world is going to have to deal with it over the next 10 to 15 years. Um, as White says, you know, there are choices that you have to make. You know, it might be that you want to keep selling iron ore at, you know, $210, $220 a, a tonne to China, but you want to call them out on the Uyghurs as well because you don't like genocide and you feel uncomfortable not saying anything. Well, you know, that's a choice you are being forced or will be forced to make now. You can either make $60, $70, $80 billion a year from selling them iron ore, or you can feel good about yourself because you call them out in the Uyghurs. You can't do both. You don't have that option anymore. And I mean, that's a, a sort of gross oversimplification of what's happening at the, the strategic level, but that's pretty much what's happening at the strategic level. They are an emerging hyperpower and they're not going to take our shit anymore. And um, I think, you know, Dutz and, and Smoko, they just want to keep handing out shit. John, while we're talking about China and now that we've uh, fixed the audio quality in an extremely professional manner, even Kevin Rudd, I, well, even mm. Kevin Rudd, he's, he's come out recently and said that all this stuff about China is ill-disciplined chest-thumping, and he's pointing straight at Peter Dutton by saying he's trying to outflank Morrison on the, yeah. on, on the Hawks' side. To make it, I don't know, to make himself look a more powerful leader with a vision for Australia that includes war with China or yeah, something. It is. When you actually just sit back, you know, just lean back, put your feet up and have a look at what's going on with these guys, it's, in, it's insane. Um, like this stuff that Dutton and, and the Pez dispenser and, and to a lesser extent Morrison have been going, it, it is literally insane. Like it's, that's not to say that you shouldn't, question the relationship because it, it it needs questioning it, it might be that you get to a point where you decide you know what i, I quite enjoy trousering 70 80 billion dollars a year from from iron ore sales but i really do need to say something about the uyghurs and i really would prefer that you know the director of the confucius institute wasn't banging on the door of the vice chancellor you know telling him we, we we can't teach history the way we've been teaching that you know that might be a path that you want to go down but you need to do it knowing that there's going to be costs and i, I think that is that is the thing that really at the moment annoys me when i think about it really chills me if you listen to the uh the, the, the dialogue that these guys are indulging, and it is an indulgence that they're indulging themselves in, is that it's they seem to be talking as though everything is cost-free. And it, it might well be that that line of thought has been encouraged because so far the costs of China's retaliation for you know us getting a little uppity as a as a nation state, um, actually haven't been that great. Like if you own a lobster boat down in Tassie and you're going out of business, then sure, it's a disaster. But if you just look at the, um, you sort of you know lift your eyes from that, as governments tend to, they don't really care about individuals. They're looking at bigger pictures. You know, the, the $20 billion worth of business we lost because they cut it off has, as I understand it, largely been replaced by other markets. And so these guys have looked back over the last, you know, 12, 18 months of increasingly poor relations. And they've gone, well, we didn't pay a price for that. 
Um, and we think it's actually helped us because we've completely fucked up, you know, COVID. All of all of the, the responsibilities to which the federal government had, um, you know, carriage of the, the pandemic, they buggered up, you know, uh, border control, quarantine, aged care, you know, vaccines, every single one of them, they've completely rooted. And so, you know, they've needed something to, you know, another story to tell so that we're not concentrating too closely on that because that, that could be the kind of thing that would actually, you know, get them kicked out of office. And, you know, they think that's a – the whole conflict with China thing has gone a lot better than they thought it would. It hasn't had a cost. And so they just – they keep telling this story as though it, it doesn't have any costs built into it, but it does. Well, yeah, the polling, I mean, it shows um – you know, it shows that Australians are increasingly distrustful of China, shall we say, concerned about the future with China. I mean, we're, we're ramping up all that war talk, obviously, but the, the polling has been showing that for several years now. Yeah, no, and, and fair enough. You know, there are very good reasons to be uh, wary of China and, and mistrustful of China. They're an authoritarian dictatorship. Um, you know, it's, but that, that's a very good reason not to go pick and fights with them that you can't win <laughs> yes. and you don't need to. And then that's the thing that I, I, I keep coming back to, like a, a lot of these fights that they had, they didn't need to have that, that fight with them over, uh, the investigation of, of COVID. They just got out ahead of the pack. Like there was going to have to be an investigation of the outbreak and it was always going to piss the Chinese off because, you know, it seems that patient zero was you know, somewhere in China, maybe in Wuhan, maybe somewhere nearby. Um, and, you know, for whatever reason, they don't want that looked into either because, you know, the bug escaped from a lab, which it probably didn't, or because the bug escaped from a wet market which is still kind of embarrassing. You know, either way, they don't want themselves held to account for a pandemic which basically fucked the world for, for two or three years. So there was always going to be an investigation of that. But what did Morrison think he was doing, jumping out ahead of the pack and, and basically, you know, calling out G and, and the others? And it just, there was no reason, there was no need for it. Like, you know, you just, if you want to be part of the pack, be part of the pack. Um, you know, if you want to lobby in the back rooms at the UN or the WHO, then then lobby in the back rooms. But but don't you know stride out in front of everybody else and and start swinging fists and elbows. So too with the the MOU thing with um, Belt and Road Initiative down in Victoria. You know, in hindsight, that was probably an ill advised deal for Victoria to sign. Um, and yet it doesn't but it was also mean anything. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it, was, yes, it was content a, free. Yeah, it was, we, we, we agree that in the future we might work together. Yeah, that was it. And so it had no real world consequence until it did. And that, the consequence arose because, you know, Dutz and ScoMo and, and the Rocksteady crew decided they would make something of it. Now, if they were really concerned about the, the MOU, all they had to do was, you know, pull Steve Brax aside after a national cabinet meeting and whisper in his shell like that it's causing, you know, it's real problems, they got real concerns, and could you just let that die on the vine? And, you know, I mean, that's that's paraphrasing what would happen, but that's, that's the way to deal with it. And, and Brax just, you know, quietly speaks to his department heads and, and ministers and goes, yeah, look, you know, we probably got ahead of ourselves, like, let's not you know, if they call us up, which they're probably not going to, <laughs> simply because, you know, no one from China is calling us at the moment. Um, <laughs> if they call up, you know, just, just you know, uh, be on a, a like a, a cigarette break or something, don't pick up the phone. And that would have been the way to deal with it. And eventually the MOU would have lapsed because uh, I, I think it, I don't know what the sunset on it was, but it's probably five years or something. Yeah, problem solved. Yeah. Look, we could talk about that for ages obviously you've written about it in uh alien side boob links on the podcast website kevin rudd's written about it hugh white's written about it all these links while we're talking about the world uh we've got a couple of minutes spare should we solve the uh israel palestine problem yeah let's knock that over <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. No problems. <laughs> so what's going on? It's a bit of trub there at the moment, is there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, a bit of back and forth yeah, across the fence. A bit of back and forth, a bit of biffo uh, going on. Uh, Hamas, uh, yeah, lobbing a few rockets. Israel lobbing a few guided missiles. Uh, media buildings being um, uh, being being blasted out of existence. And uh, the other day there was this... Uh, yeah, this quite magical little uh, vox pop done in the streets uh, of West Jerusalem uh, with, uh, yeah, here's, here's, here's what some ordinary Israelis think it's all about. I think that the Jews came here, they took, a, they took this land and this is our land now and I don't think there should be here, no Arabs. Like Arabs, they want, we gave them Gaza, they should go live there quietly if they want, they should go back to Iraq, to, I don't know, to wherever they want. I don't think there's any answer to it. Really? There's only one way, like, I would carpet bomb them. You would that, carpet bomb them? It's the, only, it's the only way you could deal with it. Like, or, or try to stop them a different way. It, it never worked. Yeah. Um, Give that man a job as the Australian Defence Minister. I, I know, I know. That, they're, they're just two people. It's a, a longer piece uh, from a mob called the Empire Files. I don't know who they are, but... Mm. They've got a like a twenty minute documentary on this up, but it does include someone who understands the psyche of war, saying, "Look, here's 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 a whole lot of these people saying things." And when you start seeing like a teenage girl saying, "We should just kill all the Arabs," mm-hmm. um, or send them back to Iraq, as that young lad did there, it's it's sorry, sorry, what? Um, and then on the other side, uh, there was a young Zionist woman on, on the Twitters yesterday saying that you shouldn't be able to have any comment on this current situation and that unless you can answer these questions. And she listed about 20 questions going back through 4,000 years of Jewish mm. history. Uh, and I thought, well, no. Actually... We agreed not to actually talk about this. We, we did because it's an insoluble situation. Like the, yeah. um, you know, I, I'm happy to sort of, you know, think out loud about the uh, the missile strike on that that media building because um, yeah. that to me looks like a pretty <laughs> a pretty obvious, if, if reasonably um, gnarly incident of uh, press management. Um, uh, you know, they yeah. they just don't want the press there. The same way that you might recall. In um, the, I mean, this is what governments do, and it doesn't matter what kind of governments are. They 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 want to control the narrative. They want to control the imagery. So you know, when Morrison was in charge of the the boats thing, um, everything was on water matters, and all of the processing were pushed offshore. Can we go visit them offshore? No, you can't. You can't. It's, it's national security. Yada yada yada. Basically, you cannot have information other than what I tell you. Uh, when you know the in, the Indonesians were sponsoring militias in East Timor to literally burn the place to the ground before the um, the the handover. You know one of the uh, one of the tactics they employed was to target the media because you know you clear out the media, it just gives you you know much greater agency, much greater freedom of action. And so I think it war seems crimes, that sort of yeah thing. yeah. I, I think that it's pretty obvious that what the uh, the IDF was doing with the strike on that building was just, it had two things. One was just a warning, like, you know, we can do this, <laughs> don't fuck us off. Uh, and the other one was was just degrading the um, uh, the capacity of those organisations to to do their job because if they do their job, it makes the Israelis look bad. You know, it, yeah, Hamas might be firing three, 4,000 rockets a week into Israel, but they're, you know, they're, they're pissy little tin tube rockets. And you know, if they land on you, they'll kill you, but they're not very good. Um, and so they think they've killed about a dozen people so far. You know, the Israeli missiles, they're really fucking good missiles, mate. No, they kill lots of yeah. people. Um, and so any kind of unbiased reporting is going to look bad for the Israelis. And so I think they, <laughs> they popped a missile into the, the media building and, and collapsed it to make that job harder. Well, yes, there's there's ways in which that if there was indeed a Hamas office in that building, you could have dealt with that office, not tell everyone, okay, an hour from now, 
you've fucked, so get out of the building. We don't want to hurt you, but we're just going to destroy every bit of equipment and every bit of data that you have. Yeah, yeah. And I just I just find it hard to believe there was a Hamas office in there because, you know, it's a building full of journos who said there was no Hamas in there. If there had been Hamas in there, the journos would have been all over it previously. Because, you know, one thing journos yeah, we're pretty lazy. <laughs> you want to do a story about Hamas. <laughs> you know, why go out in the street and go to all that trouble? Just go down the hallway and ask the bloke. You know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Someone else who's is really across the Middle East uh, is Prue McSween, 2GB commentator. <laughs> There's, again, a magnificent tweet uh, from yesterday, yesterday morning, Sunday morning, where she says, it appears Australian Labor Senator Wong want it both ways. They want to recognise Palestine as a state, but say they support a two-state solution. Which is it? Caught out again. I know. That's almost as good as, as Morrison's, um, you know, one yeah. China, two systems. Look, I, th- I think it's better because just in case, you know, the 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 folks at home aren't 100% across why that is stupid... The two-state solution is two states, and the two states would be Israel and Palestine. I saw a great tweet in reply to it, which is something like, uh, you know, Prue McSween has said to to Senator Wong, you know, Senator Wong insists that, you know, three plus two equals five, but, you know, she also wants you to believe that one plus four equals five. What is it going to be? Senator Wong. Oh. <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, but before we move on, some quick housekeeping. Uh, there's quite a lot uh, this, this episode, so there'll be two bursts of housekeeping. Sorry about that. Uh, first of all, first of all, this Thursday night, the 20th of May... It's the 8pm quiz at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. So this Thursday, 8pm on YouTube, look for it there, the 8pm quiz this Thursday night. That should be fun. You should play it. Uh, What else? Next episode of The Edict will be with cartoonist Kathy Wilcox. Uh, That will be uh, on the line on the 29th of May, so... We're recording Friday 28th. Get your trigger words and conversation topics in by midday on the 28th of May. And then after that, satirist Mark Humphreys in mid-June and space archaeologist Dr Alice Gorman on a date in June. We haven't set that yet. Think about how you want to get your trigger words and conversation topics into the mix. Someone has suggested, by the way, uh, that if you can't think of a trigger word, I should just, like, choose one absolutely at random. So if you'd like me to do that with your trigger words, just let me know, and I'll, I'll literally just choose random words from the dictionary and see uh, what comes uh, up. Uh, now, for this episode... Thank you, generous listeners. This episode made possible thanks to John August, Paris Lord, Pete Lawler. Again, that's wonderful. Thank you, uh, good gentlemen. Uh, And from now, this episode and the next few, it's thanks to all the people who contributed to the 8pm More Autumn Series 2021. Yes, this is one of the more episodes. I'll come back to you uh, later in the housekeeping to just thank you uh, in more detail. Uh, but if you'd like to join these people, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash chip, tip, tip. Chuck a few bucks in. That would be lovely if you could. It would really help at this time uh, of the year. But if you don't want to do any of that, that's fine. But please just tell your friends and family and and workmates and all that about the episodes you like because building the audience, uh, well, is just helpful for everyone. Well, trigger words, John Birmingham. There's quite a few for you this time. Uh, now, 
I do have the glass jar of transparency with a whole lot of trigger words to draw for random, but I actually have four that people have specifically asked to throw at you. Why are people so unkind? Oh, they're not bad. Uh, Gavin Costello, who you may know from the Twitters. Prison bars. <laughs> well, you know, Gavin, that was a very particular period in our lives where our paths crossed and we have moved on since then and I think we agreed we would never discuss that again. <laughs> he is actually hinting in a very roundabout way for me to ask you what you think of Cafe 63 in Brisbane. Look, which... Uh, Shall I, I explain it. that Twitter thread? Yeah, no, the, yeah, yeah, explain it to the audience, but and then I will go on and, and disgrace myself. <laughs> Cafe 63 is a Brisbane-based uh, franchise of cafes. I think there's about 40 of them now. Um, and they were on the Twitter the, the other day, or, or someone had noted, that they have this vast menu uh, where... Everything has its own name, but there's no rhyme or reason to any of it. And they have this enormous list of things you can uh, throw onto uh, uh, onto your meal, including uh, 200 grams of lamb's fry, or as we call it, sheep's liver, mm. uh, which I think it, people are rushing to do that. Where did, where did these guys come from? Uh, they came from Racecourse Road on the other side of the, the, the river to me. There's, um, there's a, a very shishy suburb over near the, the racecourse. Um, and there was uh, the first Cafe 63 was at 63 Racecourse Road. When it started out, it, uh, there was nothing else like it in the market. It was almost an American um, approach to, to fast food. Everything's brown. Every single menu item in that in that cafe restaurant is brown. There's there's nothing that's not brown there, or you know shades of brown turning yellow, but but mostly brown and lots of it. So um, you, it was very very Brisbane in that the value proposition was immediately identifiable. A gigantic fucking stack of brown food sold cheaply. Um, that was always going to do well up here. The other interesting thing about it, uh, and it was it was the case at sixty three, and it, it's been the case at pretty much every every sixty three that has followed. And I don't know, like I, I don't know much about this guy's business. I don't know whether he runs it as a franchise or whether every sixty three is just like a cell that's been broken off from the, the mothership. But they only seem to employ young Asian women. And I'm guessing they're students here doing uh, English language degrees. Um, I make no legally vulnerable claims as to why somebody would only employ young Asian female students. Um, however, in terms of the menu, I suspect the reason why that that really crazy naming system came in is that a lot of the wait staff had very poor English language skills. And so because the menu is huge and has no internal coherence whatsoever, it's much easier to call something, you know, um, an Elvis Presley or, a, you know, Gasket or a, a, a Green Speaker. It just is, it, there is no consistency to the naming. But each, each one of them is individually uh, very recognisable. Well, here's some of them. I, I mean, egg white omelette with sliced chicken breast on f with feta, spinach on, uh, feta and spinach on toast. That's a Cathy mm. Freeman. Yeah. Why? Why is it a Kathy Freeman? Because you know, when you say the Kathy Freeman, you know what's coming. Well, yes, yes, it is vast. Whereas minced beef on toast is police for some reason. I'm mm. now wondering whether if if you do this in Chinese, that these are in fact filthy, filthy puns, uh, like I don't know. the grass mud horse. 
I, I really have no idea, but I suspect that it was originally a way that the the wait staff whose language and I, I can say this from personal experience because I've eaten there plenty of times. Right. Um, you know, their English language skills aren't great. Um, and but if you tell them I want the Kathy Freeman, they know exactly what you want. On on the side note of uh, making no comment about how this might connect with student visas and a, a package because there I are have packages no that to make might, about that at all. I will speak more broadly though, and there is such a thing uh, as migration agents that will set mm. you all up. So if you're coming from China or Thailand or Vietnam or Indonesia or wherever, they will set you up a pack a package which includes. They'll, they'll sort your enrolment at the university, they'll sort your visa, they'll sort accommodation and a job. Now, obviously, when they're all packaged up in the one place, that does present the opportunity for a certain vulnerability, shall we say, mm. that if you don't do the job, then you kind of might get chucked out and they'll report you for your visa or whatever. That is a thing that happens. We've no idea about Cafe 63. But there's... A legit one in Sydney, you may wonder why in Sydney all the traffic controllers on building sites and roadworks are young Irish women. And the answer is simply there's an Irish bloke who packages up like working holiday visas from Ireland. Mm. Look, come to Australia, we'll sort out, you know, your backpacker accommodation, we'll get you a job, yeah. we'll, we'll get you your traffic controller certificate, which is half a day at, you know... Do the, do the questionnaire online, and it's an easy job. You just stand there with a stop sign in the sun. I got uh, I got into a heap of trouble uh, when I was still writing columns for, for Fairfax about maybe two two years ago or something. I just I noticed that um, when I was starting to get my, you know, you get your scam calls at various times a day, and the, the, the scammers that used to ring at about two or three in the afternoon, they were always... Um, the scam was always the same. It would be, you know, we're, we're calling up about your recent car accident. And, uh, yeah. you know, enough people have recent car accidents that, you know, maybe one out of every, what, 12, 15 punters go, oh, right. Um, but it's just, you know, it's a scam. They, they want your personal details. They want your credit card, whatever. Uh, and I just, I noticed having got a bunch of these that it was, the, the people who rang were always Irish. And yeah. I, I ended up, you know, normally I would just hang up the way that you do. Or nowadays, of course, who even answers the phone? But when I was still answering the phone, eventually I just pick one up, and I was between deadlines. I had five minutes to spare or something, and he, <laughs> the guy was on. He just went, you know, I'm I'm not going to do the Irish accent. I can't do it. But he said, yeah, I'm just calling up about your recent car accident. I went, oh, good. Anyway, sorry. I went, good, good. I've been wondering <laughs> when someone's going to call me. <laughs> it's just there's this sharp intake of of breath and, and then you know he launched into his, his spiel which is basically all leading to a point where i give him all of my personal details and you know the the you know the key to my bank security deposit box and i let him do his spiel and at the end of it i said can i ask you one thing he went yeah i said why are you people why, why are you guys you call me every day why are you always irish and there was just this silence it's like the fuck are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> You're always Irish, <laughs> and then it was, it was on like kill Kenny Cats, my friend. <laughs> he, he had a bone to pick with me, so I ended oh. up writing a column about it and got into trouble with the fucking Irish consul or something. But <laughs> oh. Nothing you um, couldn't sort out over a whiskey, surely. But that I mean, it's probably yeah, no, that's right. Um, and I, I, I've always like I, I to this day had wondered why. Why is that particular, you know, phone scam so often Irish guys? And uh, I, I think you might have just answered it. Well, Ireland's huge in the call centre yeah. industry. Yeah, it's probably right. Yeah. It's tax rates, both both in Ireland and here in Australia. I mean, it's you, you, your median visa overstayer is not a boat person. It's a 26-year-old Irish lad who's overstayed his working holiday visa and he's either working as a barman somewhere for cash or in a call centre that might not check too closely. Mm. Uh, thank you, Gavin Costello, who is Irish, for, <laughs> your, for your trigger word. <laughs> we, 
Uh, we better move through these Rex 3 fairly quickly. Uh, uh, Kaleda Albionak says fans. Fans, yeah, mate. And I will say in your latest audio book, which I'll get to later, I, I recognise some character names from people mm. who who may be fans, but that's another story. Um, fans, tell us about your yeah, fans. Yeah, that doesn't treat me at all. Like I, I, I live and die by fans. Um, it's... Was it was it Kevin Kelly who who said you know the the if you can find a thousand true fans a thousand artist, true fans yes yeah I will um, link to that you've, you've got it said, made yep, that's where you make your money because your yeah. true fan will spill a hundred spend a hundred bucks a year like they'll buy the album they'll buy the t shirt yeah. they'll go to the gig hundred bucks by a thousand people that's that's an income. Yeah, and I think if, if you go back, I don't know, what, 10, 15 years ago um, when you had that real, um, probably before iTunes launched, the Napster period, when uh, that whole sort of, you know, content wants to be free bullshit was oh, yeah. just rampaging everywhere, uh, there was a real fear um, I remember having a really interesting discussion with a mate of mine, Aaron Thomas, who writes uh, uh, textbooks for, I think, Microsoft. Um, and he he thought that the the era of content creation, of writing books, writing anything, creating anything was over. He said, people just won't pay. They simply will not pay when they can get it for free. And I had this... Um, well, let's be honest, it was a naive belief that... Um, something would would happen and in fact something something did happen the, the sort of the disintermediation of the the artist fan slash consumer relationship meant that you, you your true fans the people who you know sometimes are a little bit obsessed with with what you're putting out and you know will contact you later on a Sunday night <laughs> to sort of pester you about you know whether you've got that that set of edits back from New York yet um they will. Just, they feel like saying, "I've got a fucking editor to do that." <laughs> um, you know, they will. They they they'll support you. Um, so yeah. it's. I, I don't find the idea of fans triggering at all. Like I, I still make the bulk of my money um, and my livelihood from just you know straight up commercial relationships with various kinds of publishers. But undergirding the whole thing, I, I have a bunch of fans who. Have supported me through you know, occasionally some pretty tough and bleak times, and I'm, I'm very grateful mm. for them. Thank you, Carletta. Dave Gorkerger, who you've been chatting to just recently, uh, he, he wants to throw the word harbinger at you. <laughs> Outcome harbinger. Um, yes. Yeah, that, that, that's an in joke for, for readers slash listeners of, uh, of Zero Day. Actually, Code, I don't think he's which- got to that point yet. He's only just he's reading the hard copy books. Okay. Oh, well, I don't, well, that that I, is oh. actually kind of interesting. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cuz we we oh. sorry, backstory folks at home. Uh Dave Gorkridger on the Twitter has said he's been reading uh JB's uh Zero Day Code trilogy, only the first of which has appeared as a an ebook yet. It's mm-hmm. uh, an audio book with uh, Audible and and all three volumes are available there. There is a thing called opera, uh, Outcome Harbinger as a code word in the third Later volume. The I, I will say no more. Yeah. I, I, think, I, I think Dave has been listening, but he was also asking when were they coming out in, in um, okay. other formats. So the answer to that is 18 months after they were dropped into the audio channel. I think he also is uh, thinking of you as a harbinger of doom more generally. So isn't Harbinger a uh, – isn't it a reference from Mass Effect? Oh, look, that that's not anything that I would know about. Uh, but I'm going to look up – I think it just generally Harbinger, a person or thing that announces or signals the approach of another, the forerunner of something, uh, usually a Harbinger of doom, in obviously in um, frequent usage. I mean, you did with this trilogy talk about things being hacked, like mm. 
the uh, the pipeline distribution the US, networks so and distribution yeah. networks pandemics. Um, you do write about the end of the world. Generally. A lot. Like that's yeah, your like that's your stick. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you what, it's a lot more fun to to write about than it is to live it, buddy. It's um. Yeah. Is I'm is like that why the global pandemic is pushed into the background in the third volume? It's just a thing that. It's referenced, but it's not something in the foreground. Um, look, narrative—it's it, basically just narrative engineering. Um, I needed a way to uh, basically contain the story within the um, the, the sort group of, of characters. Well, that the, yeah, the light cone of the characters who'd been telling it in in book one. Um, so, I, you know, I, I needed to basically deal with the rest of the world. and <laughs> dealt with the rest of the world by killing everybody. Uh, and also that it, was a, it was a chance to um, pay a little homage to, to Stephen King. So it, at the end of Zero Day Code, there's a scene where um, some military guys have orders to basically unleash a plague on the world. And um, that's a lot of the scenery and that is actually taken from Stephen King's The Stand. And then just twisted oh, okay. slightly. All right, so that, that, that was partly just me, because that whole series spun out of my love of the stand. Um, it was, you know, the first book I ever bought as a as a kid. I think I read it about fifteen or twenty times. So um, uh, the 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 pandemic reference in there was partly. Uh, narrative convenience for me, and and partly just the you know tip of the propeller beanie to uh, old Steve. Did you know that the Wikipedia article for Gonzo Journalism lists you as one of its proponents, along with Tom Wolfe and uh, Hunter S. Thompson? I did not, and I'm a little embarrassed by that. To tell you the truth, <laughs> who did that? <laughs> I suppose Whoever we could that, dig, back, dig back through the edits and find out, but yeah. I thought oh, I list that because I've been on a bit of a HST jag uh, last mm. few days and and watched uh, Terry Gilliam's film of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas last night. Las Vegas, I should say, Las Vegas. Las, Las, uh, Las, but yeah. I, I followed links on Wikipedia, and then I'm there. Oh yeah, you know, Gonzo journalism leading proponents are and John Birmingham, and I thought. Surely not. Uh, but yes, not for you. a long time. It's, ah. um, you know, maybe twenty-five years ago. Um, well, I'm thinking it's it's falafel, obviously, and Dopeland. Dopeland, maybe. I, I did a lot. I used to do a lot of magazine features that were Gonzo. Ah. Um, you know, I just go and sort of drop. And they were in, in Rolling story. Stone. Uh, they were in Rolling Stone. Yes, yeah. some were in Penthouse. Um, there's a couple of other magazines I used to do the kind of work for. Uh, it's like a lot of people, a lot of kids uh, in particular, think that you you know to be to practice gonzo journalism, you basically have to swallow a bucket of hard drugs before you you do anything. Um, I got nothing against swallowing a bucket of hard drugs, but. It's it's not going to help you do the research. Um, it, it gets so, in the way of productivity pretty seriously. Yeah, yeah. The there's the I don't even know nowadays what the, the the definition would be. Like you'd have to maybe go back and read the essay at the front of Tom Wolfe's The New Journalism to see whether you could tease out Gonzo as a a strand of that um, particular genre because it is very much it's it's not it is new journalism but new journalism isn't Gonzo. Um, and I'd, I'd, if I was being, you know, serious about it, I'd, I'd put myself into the new journalism camp before I put myself in a Gonzo. There is a site I discovered through that link following called gonzotoday.com, which does have a Ralph Steadman um, logo cool. on the top, which is still currently updating. I have not looked into it at all. It's in an open browser tab along with 47 and others, but interesting to have a look. Thank you, Dave Gorkridger. Gorkridger. Thank you, Dave Gorkridger. Uh, and finally, in the trigger words, John Ferguson over in uh, New Zealand says, why? <laughs> um, I don't know why John says that. It's it, it reminds me instantly of uh, what has to be an apocryphal 
story from my uni days, which is, you know, the, tell me if you've heard this story too, like, you know, a philosophy student first year goes into exam, the exam question is why? And the student answers, why not? And gets 100%. Mm. That's it. That's all I got. That's... <laughs> I'm just wondering whether that is a very it, it, whether that has risen to the level of urban myth yet. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, thank you, everyone, who's sent in those trigger words. Uh, I'll, I'm doing the housekeeping separately, so we'll worry about all that later. Endometriosis is a common disease that affects women, mainly in their reproductive years, anything between 15 and 50 years of age. It's a disease that causes pain and infertility. The main symptoms that women present to me with are definitely pelvic pain symptoms. That can be pain with periods, which is quite common for women with endometriosis, but a lot of women with endometriosis might get pain at other times of the cycle or randomly. Uh, they can also get pain when they're having bowel motions or emptying their bladder. Well, without a doubt, the most common symptom that I'm involved with is actually uh, sexual pain or in fact uh, difficulty even having sexual intercourse. Now that's just part of a, a medical seminar from Endometriosis Australia, which is remarkable because it's a, a, a medical condition specific to women but features mostly men on, on that seminar. I've actually reduced the ratio of men to women on that little grab. Uh, and, and, of course, now we'll continue, uh, JB, as two men to talk about mm. a women's medical condition. But this is obviously a thing you've been focused on recently. Again, thanks to uh, a rather, shall I say, excellent piece in your Alien Sideboob newsletter, which people should subscribe to. Um, yeah, I was looking at – I wrote that piece during Budget Week. Um, you know, Budget was, what, Tuesday, Wednesday night or something? And yep. um, the <clears> – <throat> I didn't watch it. I think I went off to – my jiu-jitsu class that night and I didn't read much about it the next day. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, the narrative emerges over the course of the week and it just keeps getting sold as this this women's budget and, you know, it's for the ladies and yada, 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 yada. And I just, uh, this is just rubbish. And so I just, I wanted to have a look at one particular aspect of it, just, just you know, dial down, drill down into it and, and see whether or not... Um, there was anything, anything to it. Uh, I, I know a couple of women with endo. Um, they had, you know, obviously when they found out there was some budget measures addressing it, they, you know, dived right in to have a look. And, you know, what they found was that, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, because it was SCOMA, it was all bullshit. Um, you know, there, there, there wasn't a huge amount of funding. I don't know there was any funding at all, to be honest, for uh, actual medical treatment. The... Um, yeah, the, the budget papers have sent some money to a group, and I'm not criticising the group because I don't know anything about them, um, but, you know, they, they go around to schools and they give talks about endometriosis to, you know, um, uh, high school kids, so presumably mostly female. Yeah. And at the moment, they you know, they're going, I think they're doing this in 80 schools in, in West Australia and 60 in South Australia. And the funding would allow them to take their, you know, educational talk to another twenty schools nationally, and that's it. And that 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 was the increased funding. That's, that sounds for, like one project officer and a bit of travel, or maybe just the travel for an existing project officer. Yeah, that's that's right. And it just, I just, you know, I, you know, I personally. Uh, obviously, I don't have any um, experience with with endo, but I, as I said, I, I know people who do, and I know how you know difficult and debilitating it can be. I suppose we should say what it is, and if I can quickly summarise it, it's tissue similar to the lining of the uterus, which is what gets hmm. uh, uh, shed during a woman's period. Yeah, turns up elsewhere through the abdomen. 
and therefore it's the same sort yeah. of tissue, so it reacts in the same kind of way and starts disintegrating, even though it might be wrapped around mm. your bowel or your bladder or just generally through your body. It sounds yeah, and it, it causes scarring, and it is it is nasty. It's, it's you know it's a big fucking deal, and it affects a fucking shit ton of people, like a shit ton of women. It's it's one in ten that that little clip said. Well, I didn't have it in the clip. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, mate. If one in ten blokes were getting dick rot, we'd be spending more on this than we're going to spend on war with China. And this, the, you know, you just, I, I didn't go any further into the budget. As I said, I just wanted to have a look at one particular issue. So I had a look at this because I, I knew people um, who were personally affected by it and who'd done their own research into it. And it just, you know, it's just the same old fucking same old with these guys, isn't it? It's just everything is just fucking smoke and mirrors and bullshit. And that is the perfect point to end that because you said it all in your alien side boob piece. It's called Clotty's Little Ladies of Vegemite Land. It is a free to read run. It is a free it is a free to read one. That's hard to say. Um, but aliensideboob.substack.com links on the website are as usual. And ladies listening, give it give it to your your men blokes to to have a read and and have a think about. And uh, the second part of the housekeeping before we get to the final segment with JB, uh, don't forget, as I say, this Thursday, the 20th of May, the 8pm quiz at 8pm on the Sheep Tunnel. Search for it there. Live stream should be a bit of fun. Uh, this episode, as I said, it's thanks to all the people who supported the 9pm More Autumn Series 2021. Thank you so much. Uh, I'll run through uh, most of you very quickly. Conversation topics. Philip Merrick, please send in your conversation topic. Thank you so much. Uh, plus one person who chose to remain anonymous. Uh, buying themselves three trigger words. Adam Baxter, uh, thank you, sir. Sheepy. Uh, now, Sheepy's done this idea of, of just, you know, getting me to pick random words. So we'll see some of them coming up in the next episodes. Uh, three more uh, uh, people who are anonymous uh, bought three trigger words. A trigger word each from Bede Kelleher, Bick Smith, David King, Frank Filipponi, Gavin C, who we've just heard from, uh, Jonathan Ferguson, we've just heard from, Youp DeVitt, Mark Newton, Michael Cowley, Mick Fong, yeah, you've got some more owed to you, I think, from the past as well, mate. Uh, Rick Heyman, Ross Nye, and four more anonymous punters. That is fabulous. Uh, thank you to all eight of the Media Freedom citizens who contributed a basic tip. You're all listed on the website. Uh, and thank you to the oh, big batch of these foot soldiers for Media Freedom who gave a slightly less basic tip. David Heath again, Errol Cavett again, Garth Kidd again, Katrina Zetti again, thank you, Kimberly Heitman, Matt Bowden, Paris Lord, Peter Blakely, Peter McCrudden, Ruben Sharder, Susan Rankin, Tim Johns, and another person who chooses to remain anonymous. And then there's another eight people who chose to have no reward whatsoever, even though some of them uh, were the most generous of all. So thank you so much to all of you. You've made uh, this extended autumn series possible uh, i love you all big licks and cuddles uh and if you'd like to join them uh for benefits for a subscription maybe just licks and cuddles uh go to the 9pm edict.com slash tip so just pausing there because the whole licks and cuddles thing caused a bit of a rush of blood to the head really uh the 9pm edict.com slash tip We're getting uh, pretty close to the end of our time here, if not going almost past it. So let's let's plough plow through a few happier things quickly, shall we, JB? Uh, Jack Dorsey, founder and, and boss fellow at Twitter, uh, he's saying Bitcoin changes everything for the better. Well, if you're a 
yeah, an organised criminal or a scammer, I guess it does, yeah. <laughs> Again, no comment about you, Jack. Decided to hold the petrol distribution network of the US East Coast. It's, yeah, yeah it's great. Yeah. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll skip any further comment on that because I, d- I did have a whole pod with David Gerrard, the uh, blockchain realist, a couple of weeks back, which people either enjoyed or didn't. Uh, <laughs> depending which side of the barrier they're on. Uh, News today from Russia, well, actually late last week, uh, apparently in one of the uh, inaccessible chambers of the old Chernobyl nuclear reactor, uh, the bit that they've encased Mm -hmm. in concrete, uh, there there has been a recent surge of neutron activity down in there, which indicates that uh, a chain reaction is starting to increase down in the bit the bay buried in concrete. So, So that's going to be good. Yeah, I'm sure Vladimir Putin will be all over that. Had you had you thought of another nuclear meltdown? I just uh, you you would hope it was something like you know something just something simple like you know the capstone to the underrealms coming off and demons. You've coming done through. that one, but no, it's it's probably probably a runaway nuclear yeah, reaction. That's good. Um, uh, colonial pipelines, yeah, I think that's been done to death. And I want to I want to wrap because I know. You, like me, enjoy going out for a quality drink and conversation. Uh, Richard Tice is the head of the Reform UK party in the UK. And it turns out he is uh, teaming up with actor Lawrence Fox uh, to, to open a pub. You know, as our commitment to reopening London to get the place going again, mm. we want to buy a pub or a restaurant somewhere that's got a license yeah. near the centre, yeah. and we want to brand it the Fox and Tyson. It will be the, it'll be the home of free speech, yes. of right wing comedy, uh, things that you can't normally do because of the woke brigade won't mm. allow you to do it. Right, and where you can you can have your own tankard, let it be British food, mm-hmm. and we're absolutely clear. No vaccine passports. A couple of Union Jacks knocking about. Plenty of Union Jacks knocking about. No vaccine passports. (laughs) No masks. And open for as long as we possibly can be. Sounds marvellous. Yeah, that's a problem that'll solve itself (laughs) very quickly. (laughs) I think we could leave it there. John Birmingham, thanks as always for your time. I better let you go about your day. Good to chat. Thanks, Bunny. Did he just say thanks, Bunny? Anyway, that's it for the edict for now. Um, look, you know you know the drill. The 9pm edict.com for all the links. The 9pm edict.com slash tip uh, to chuck some dollars into the thingy. Uh, next episode, towards the end of the month, with cartoonist Kathy Wilcox. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Wash your hands. Yeah, he did. Listen to this. Thanks, Bunny. The 9pm edict is a skank media production. Sorry.